Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward, and uh, this week we're going to do a shorter intro. We want to get right, I, I want to get right into the show um, because I'm talking to one of my absolute favorite people in the world. Uh, a, I, a few months ago, I was asked uh, the question of who is someone who you look up to? And they were asking it in like pertaining to ultra running, but really in reality, it's someone I just look up to in general. Uh, and my first instinct uh, was to talk about my friend Thomas Mullins. Um, he is a guy I raced with at Desert Rats. Um, we formed a friendship there. We we uh, we just had an awesome time racing together. Um, the last day, this was in 2018, and the last day uh, I ran with Thomas for pretty much the entire marathon, and it was definitely um, probably the the most memorable racing. Uh, moments I had because it was just super fun. We had a goal in mind that we're trying to reach uh, and then an unknown obstacle in the way in the form of this giant boulder uh, that they were going (laughs) to make poor Thomas carry by himself and we teamed up on it uh, and carried it together. So super sweet. Love that memory so much. Um, I have learned so much about the sport of ultra running and have really upped my game um, solely I mean, based on a lot, I guess a few different things, but like one of the main reasons why is because of conversations I've had with Thomas and kind of his strategies and his thoughts. And uh, one reason I really respect him is during the race, this guy is so focused and he sticks to his plan no matter what, because we've all been there. There are parts of the race where that tempt you to go faster than you want to go or um, tempt you to slow down or even tempt you to stop. But he very logically looks at the race and sticks with his plan. But at the same time, he is able to be adaptable in any circumstance, any weather uh, challenges, things like that. Um, he, he is very adaptable and very knowledgeable. Um, so I'm super excited to share this podcast with you guys. Um, Thomas just got done running the Tahoe 200. In fact, last week on the show, Phil and I gave him a call, wished him some luck. Uh, he finished that race. Um, it sounded like when just through text messages, he felt very good about his outcome, very successful and very much uh, injury free and kind of not soreness free because I'm assuming you're very sore after that anyways, but he came out of it in really good condition. So I wanted to bring him on the podcast today to hear about the Tahoe 200, but I also want to hear about his uh, training plan, his approach, his strategy. What was his plan going into the race? So here it is. One of the coolest dudes in the world, my friend, Thomas Mullins. Bring it on, Chris Ward. All right, let's do it. Um, I'm so excited because one, uh, you your name's been mentioned quite a bit on the podcast since Desert Rats Part Two. Um, if you're around Phil Pinty, it takes about two minutes before he mentions the name Thomas Mullins. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> the the whole entire ride from. Uh, Moab to Fruta, which is like an hour and a half or whatever. I swear he just mm. talked about you for the whole entire ride to the rest of the, the rest of the van. So, 
I love me some Phil. I think about him often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So anyways, I'm super pumped to have you on the show. And and just like, I hope you feel comfortable with compliments because um, someone asked me a few months ago, they're like, who do you look up to in the sport of ultra running? And my very first answer was Thomas Mullins. Uh, I think yeah. the thing, and the thing I admire I mean, so many things I admire, but one of the things is you, you go into a race with a plan and then you stick with it no matter what. And there's something to be said about that discipline. And I think most people find that discipline really challenging. Uh, but watching you race and running with you and, and doing a couple events with you, like that's really, that really stands out as something special. So, so yeah, man. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, you have to trust the plan. Whatever plan it is you've laid out, you have to trust it and not get caught up in a moment. Um, And just stay with your plan. Keep your eyes on your own paper and not be concerned with what's going on around you. And don't get me wrong, plans change because things change. Weather changes, appetite changes. Uh, feet change so you have to be able to adapt certainly but I think a lot of times people have a tendency to bail on their plan a little too quickly Um, it's just like investing long term people get afraid and they want to bail on the plan that's been given to them hold the line hold your line and ultimately it will serve you better than bailing on that plan that's for sure yeah yeah, man. Well, I mean, there's so many like great leaders who kind of stick with that idea, right? Like stick to the process, stick to the plan. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like a almost like a stoic, like logical decision making versus letting your emotions take control. I guess, for example, yeah. if you're in a race and the plan is to walk every single uphill and as you're doing that, people are passing you. <laughs> it's really hard to not to be like, oh, I should just run this. I feel fine, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what happens to people. They get sucked into that 200 miles, 100 miles, whatever the distance is, uh, even 26.2. Uh, nothing happens till the end, uh, and you have to trust that. You know, they may be feeling good. Let them feel good. Move on. Stick to your plan. Uh, that way you have a much more consistent flow of output, instead of so many peaks and valleys. And that's what I try to control. I want a much more consistent line across the board uh, as opposed to those peaks and valleys. And I saw it a lot on Tahoe. Um, people were like, golly, how are you passing us? You know, you keep passing us because they would try to continually run, but that that's just not a formula that works for me, uh, particularly over 200 miles. Yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely want to get into Tahoe, but... I kind of, you know, I want to hear a little bit about your athletic background because I met you two and a half years ago. And so I know, I know the Thomas Mullins, you know, since two and a half years, I know the events you've kind of focused on, but what, like, how did you get into endurance racing, man? Well, it really started coming out of college or in college. Um, I was always athletic, played high school, football, baseball, track. Um, And then 
I went to college to play football and quickly realized, Ooh, this is too fast, too hard for me. Um, I think I better just get an education and uh, focus on some other things. So to stay fit, I became involved with uh, mountain biking, and that was kind of at the dawn of mountain biking uh, back in uh, 1992, 1993. Um, Fell in love with it, and then I started doing some triathlons. Triathlons led to Xterra, and then I did race semi-pro mountain bike for quite some time uh, on the, uh, the Arkansas Mountain Bike Series. Um, and after a while, I, I, I grew tired of the sport. Um, doping had become so prevalent. Uh, it just wasn't fun anymore for me. And there was uh, a gentleman, a retired guy that I hung out with, Tom Lowry, uh, who always encouraged me to go trail running. He always asked me, why are you riding those trails when you could be running on there? It's a lot more fun. And he's actually one of the pioneering fathers uh, in the state of Texas for building trail in the state parks. So this guy had a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge that he shared with me. So I did. Uh, I went and signed up for a 50-mile foot race, and I never looked back after that. Uh, I believe I placed top five in it right off the bat. And, oh, I was miserable. I hurt. I couldn't walk. I had to go to work that night. I'll never forget it. Uh, but I instantly fell in love with it. And that's when I started taking ultra running a little more serious and uh, becoming a student of the of the game and learning how to run and all those aspects that go around it. Yeah, that's crazy, man. So what what would you say is the biggest difference i mean you mentioned doping but what what other kind of differences do you see in the mountain biking um and you were doing it at like a fairly high level too which i wonder if you know versus just the go out and do some mountain bike events for fun kind of crowd you know but like what Mm -hmm. what differences did you do you see in the communities uh between ultra running and mountain biking yeah yeah um yeah it's for me, it's huge because mountain biking was such a huge part of my life for a long time and racing at a, uh, a pretty high level there. Um, when you're racing that hard and there's sponsors involved, uh, money and winning uh, is a little more important. There certainly is a lot of pressure there. Um, maybe camps and other racers aren't quite as friendly. Uh, the ultra running community. Oh, it's like a family. Yeah. Everybody is for everybody. Uh, I've stopped my races. I don't know how many times to help other people. I don't know how many times other people stop their races to help me. Because uh, the ultimate goal is to just get to the finish line. It doesn't matter what place you're in or where you're at. I don't think very many of us do it for that. It's just the satisfaction of crossing the line and being out there with other like-minded people who are suffering or enjoying uh, the event like we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love it because you actually like get to talk to people and meet people on the trail. You know what I mean? Because you are going at a little bit slower pace. Like I'm, I'm assuming in mountain biking, you're not riding next to each other, chatting away and, and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> 
slow and you're not. You're throwing elbows. Uh, and you're so right. You know, look how we met uh, yeah. at the stage race with Gemini uh, Adventures. Look how much we visited and got to know each other and develop relationships. Uh, and then, you know, the Grand Traverse, uh, the camaraderie that we developed through that, uh, the camaraderie that uh, you've developed with other runners uh, like Phil. Yeah. Um, Uncle Polly. Uncle uh, Paul. All these folks. <laughs> oh, I know. I miss you, Uncle Polly. <laughs> <laughs> but it does it does promote camaraderie and visiting and just getting to know one another. And yeah. through that, those relationships spawn. And look, uh, halfway across the country, uh, we go to see each other now and uh, keep up with each other and go pace each other other events now. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's so cool. That's so cool. So when did, uh, I know you did Bigfoot 200 a few years ago. Um, so mm-hmm. when did that get on your radar? And I don't know, dude, you just seem very confident and very like, uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I just, you seem like, not that it comes easy. Cause I don't think that, but like, you just are like, yeah, this is what happened. Like even keeled, I guess, but, mm-hmm. but it, it comes across as confidence too. So when you signed up for Bigfoot, was, was there confidence involved or were you kind of like, was there self doubt? Like, I'm not gonna be able to finish this or anything like that. I know never had any self doubt. Um, signed up for Bigfoot 2017. I was super pumped to, go see that part of the country a friend of mine a very good friend of mine who i mountain biked uh and run with moved to that area and he actually is the one that hit me up and said hey there's this foot race here you should come do it i'll crew you my wife and i will crew you uh and i'll help you with it that'd be a good reason to come see us so i pulled it up bigfoot 200 uh, hey yeah. i've been dying to go you know these bigger distances this is perfect why not yeah, I immediately jumped in and clicked go on it and signed up. Um, and as soon as I did, I remember thinking, I need to go see if I can just go knock out 100 miles and see how I feel with little or no training. That was my thinking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I did. There was a race right here in our backyard, uh, Dinosaur Valley 100. Um I hadn't, uh, I think I signed up end of August for Bigfoot. And then maybe this hundred miler here was in October, mid-October. Um, I maybe ran 10 miles leading up to that hundred miler. I woke up the morning of the hundred miler in my own bed. And the race was going to start in an hour. I threw my shoes on, my gear and a kit together. Uh, the same kit that you're required to carry for Bigfoot is what I did. And I thought, I'm going to race with this kit the whole time and let's see what happens. And I threw me out some sandwiches out there. It was a looped course. And I crewed myself, um, did the entire race myself. Uh, then what? As soon as they fi- I pull up, everyone's standing on the starting line, and the race director sees me. And she's like, hurry up, the race is getting ready to start. <laughs> I park my truck. I run from my truck, jog lightly, go pick up my bib, sign up, 
and they fired the gun to go at this hundred miler. <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, if I can do this, yeah, I can do Bigfoot, right? Yeah. Uh, so, and then from that stemmed a great deal of confidence. It literally, when they fired the gun, it started pouring rain. It never stopped, and it decimated the field. I, I think only 13 of us, 14 or 15 of us, finished the race. Uh, people got stuck out there hypothermic, not prepared for the weather. And fortunately, I had all of that with me because oh, there I was you go. mandatory requirements yeah. for Bigfoot. So it worked. It worked. And I crossed the finish line. I felt fine. I thought, wow, I feel great. Uh, was it sore? I didn't hurt. Uh, very minor uh, foot blistering. Uh, things I could easily resolve with a little more planning. But that's how Bigfoot came to be. And I thought, well, gosh, if I could do this, I know I can go do Bigfoot. Dude, wait. So, but how? <laughs> like, I, how did you feel okay after a 100-miler without barely any training? Um, I think I kept a nice, easy pace the entire time. Again, I told myself, I just want to finish. Um, I believe the cutoff was quite general uh quite uh, uh generous at 35 hours maybe okay and I, and I and i gave myself 35 hours to get that done uh and i believe i did it in 30 hours um is what i did it in ultimately it was a muddy sloggy mess as well um but that's all the goal was to just finish yeah. that's all you have to do you don't have to push it Tread lightly, take care of yourself. You can walk a hundred miles in less than thirty hours on this trail, and I did. And so again, it was going back to sticking to that plan. Yeah, that makes sense. So I don't. I when I, I we can get into Bigfoot a little bit. Like, what did you learn from that first experience? Because I definitely want to get into Tahoe. Um, because you sent me, I think the text you sent me was like. Yeah, I feel pretty good. And it was like right after right after Tahoe. You're like, I feel uh, you know, I feel pretty good right now. And I'm like, wow, I wonder how mm -hmm. many people who have just finished the Tahoe two hundred just say, Yeah, like I feel okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um I'll get to what I learned about Tahoe. You wanna know what I learned from Bigfoot? Yeah. Uh that really gave me a lot of confidence. Um, again, I think it was trusting myself, uh, and being able to adapt quickly. Bigfoot, we started out in uh, near hundred degree temperatures at Mount St. Helen. Uh, then we saw, uh, whiteout fog, freezing fog, snow, and then torrential rain. So facing those five different weather elements in such a short amount of time taught me to be very well prepared and be able to adapt and don't be afraid to slow way down. Yeah. You have the time. You're making cutoffs. Don't drive yourself into a bad situation by pushing too hard. So just be able to adapt and stay calm. I believe that's probably the biggest lessons I learned at Bigfoot, and that served me very well uh, again in Tahoe because we had those same similar conditions. 
Yeah. Yeah, well, so was there is there any moment? Have you ever had a moment in a race where you've not stayed calm? You know, like you started to panic and if so, like what was what was that like? I did. It was terrible. Okay. It was terrible and I swore I'd never do that again. <laughs> okay. And, <laughs> and it was my first attempt at Leadville um 100. And uh, I had a pacer at Winfield to turn around. Great race, everything going well. And um, pick up my pacer. We're at the top of Winfield. We're coming back down into uh, Twin Lakes. And we forgot our lights. Um, we forgot our headlamps. And from Winfield back down to Twin Lakes, it, it's dark. It's very rocky. It's very dangerous uh, in the dark. <clears throat> and it was a rookie mistake. Uh, I didn't have a spare light. And uh, what made it even worse was when other runners would come by with their headlamps on, it would blind you, not be able to see. And uh, I panicked. I was frustrated in the moment. And I let it get the best of me. <clears throat> when I could have bared down and focused on moving faster so that I wouldn't get clocked out, uh, aid station after next at uh, half pipe, yeah. which is where I got clocked out. Uh, and that's what cost me because I got down in the dumps. I started dragging my feet, tripping over my lower lip, feeling bad for myself and beating myself up for a bad decision. And if I would have just perked up and stayed with it and moved along and rolled with the punches, I probably could have completed that first Leadville uh, quite easily. Yeah. But yeah, that's what got me right there. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. Well, you almost have to like, just tell yourself like the decision was the decision. I made the wrong one, but now I have to deal with it. It's kind of like that mentality rather than like dwelling on it, which is really easy to say and really hard to do. You got it. I mean, that's it exactly. You know, I could, and there's a similar story in Tahoe, and I'll talk about that as well. Okay. But had I been patient and relied on maybe other racers, I might have gotten a light. Someone might have given me one, or I could have asked for one. It really was that simple. Why yeah. didn't I do that? Why didn't I do that? Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, especially, you know, the trail running community, people, yeah, you people would have given you something, most likely. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's get in. Let's and get it, into. And if you don't ask, the answer is always no. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, just like when you asked me to put that giant boulder in my bag. Hey, you did it. Well, it's one of the greatest trail stories ever. <laughs> I still love that. I was not going to carry that. We'll just break this down and we'll share the load. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious, man. I I was thinking, um, I don't know if you even saw the one this year that Phil had to carry, but it was definitely way smaller than the one you had to carry. They gave, they Are gave, you kidding me, really? Yeah, dude, Phil's fit in his hand. Not to talk crap, Phil, because I know he's probably going to listen to this, but <laughs> it fit into his hand. Yours was like a giant like 80 pound boulder probably it was big yeah at it least was, or maybe bigger it was know. huge yeah that's that's hilarious um <laughs> let's uh let's get into tahoe real quick um 
So I, you know, texting you leading up to the race, I, you, you told me you have, uh, like a really solid training plan and you, you had a coach, um, which I'm not sure if that was a new thing that you've, you tried. Um, but can you like speak a little bit to that? Absolutely. So 14 weeks out, I, I was still on the wait list to get into Tahoe, um, and waiting and waiting to see, and I'd been lightly training. Well, not lightly training. I'd been on my personal training plan that I'd used for Bigfoot and Leadville. And up to that point, I had been uh, religiously listening to Dr. Sean Bearden's uh, Ultra uh, Science uh, podcast. And I'd learned a great deal from listening to those podcasts. You know, I know you've probably listened to a few of them as yeah. well. Um, they're fantastic. Great information, scientific, uh, all science-based. Uh, with a, You know, there's a lot of common sense and knowledge in there as well from uh, runners. But um, I had decided if I got into Tahoe that I would take it seriously and see if I could get Dr. Sean Bearden to coach me for Tahoe. Um, so as soon as I found out, I got in, I submitted and applied to Dr. Bearden's program and uh, heard back from him. It was quite the interview process, actually, and came back. They accepted me, and he took me in. Uh, so he drew up a plan, and I, I'm a running coach myself. I'd never been coached by anyone else, and I told myself, I just want someone to take over my running prescriptions and I just want to go do the workout and be done with it. And this guy made the most sense to me out of anyone else out there. And I thought, man, I really connect with this. This is, this is perfect. Yeah. Um, so that's what we did. We went to work on that and it was fantastic. All I had to do was follow, uh, this new program, trust it. And I had to really tell myself, Trust this person's program. If you really believe in it, you need to trust it and turn everything over to this guy. Don't change it. Don't try to make them longer. Don't try to, uh, you know, make it your own in any way. That's why you're paying this guy the money. And so ultimately it served me very well. This is the least amount I've ever trained for any event uh, that I've run, uh, no injuries, um, protecting yourself from that. It's the least amount of time I've spent on my feet prior to an event. Uh, the mileage was really low. It was so low that there were times even on the long runs, which weren't more than, uh, four and a half hours long. I was really worried. I wanted to extend and go two or three more hours. Yeah, uh, I thought this is just not enough time on my feet. I, I'm getting nervous and worried, but no, I didn't. I trusted the plan and I stayed with it. So it, it worked out great. Uh, it's fantastic experience and still training with coach. Uh, Bearden. Yeah, that's awesome. Man. Well, so how much can be said too of just like you not having to make that decision, you know, cause you, you do so many different things and you wear so many different hats 
literally like a cowboy hat sometimes, but, um, (laughs) but you know, it's just like one more thing on your plate every day is deciding what you have to do for training and, and it can wear you out like decision fatigue. You know, you get to the end of the day and you know, you don't, you aren't making the best decisions in that. Um, but passing it over to someone else, like I have to imagine that just takes that aspect out of it. And you're just like, Oh, this is what I do today. This is what the guy told me to do. So I have to do it. And when it's someone with such incredible credentials, boy, it, it makes it easy to trust. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. Yeah, man. So you showed up at Tahoe, the start line. Like, how are you feeling? You're feeling obviously not injured. Um, was there, when you showed up to the start line, was there any of that doubt of like, oh man, I only did a four and a half hour run, which I'm sure that some people who are listening to this who have done 200s in the past, they might be kind of like, whoa, that sounds insane. Yeah, right. Uh, honestly, a week or 10 days before, you know, we were talking about doing a Grand Traverse together. Um, and, of course, I passed on that. You, uh, I was that like, was hey. part of the training plan. <laughs> yeah, I was like, hey, do you <laughs> – I have a friend who's doing the tran- tra- Grand Traverse, and I know you're in Crested Butte. You should – you should do it. And you just go, I see what you're trying to do here. I'm like, I'm not falling for that. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't. Um, but, you know, I wasn't feeling great at that time. And there in Crested Butte or Almont, uh, where we stayed during the summers, uh, that's at 9,200 feet where we uh, sleep every night and live. And it had been quite taxing on me. It kind of worn me down. Uh, training at altitude, uh, living at altitude, and uh, developed a little bronchial thing. And my bronchioles were inflamed. I was tired. I uh, felt like I was getting fluey, maybe a little cold or something. So I I literally, uh, during my taper, I had to shut my running down um, just to ensure that I would get well and not make myself worse. Uh, talk about trusting, you know, oh my gosh, I'm missing all this training. I got to have this right now. But no, um, I found it was better to rest, eat real well, take care of myself. Um, And I kept thinking to myself, hey, I'm strong. I'm healthy. We're still, you know, 10, 12 days out. That's plenty of time for me to get well enough to start Tahoe 200. So I didn't worry too much about it. Did a lot of trout fishing, uh, did a lot of good eating, and I showed up to Tahoe, you know, feeling ready to go um, uh, with those 250 other crazies out there. And uh, everything was clean. There was no injuries. Uh, Super confident uh, in my plan. I showed up to the start line half an hour before the race started. (laughs) I stayed in my hotel room. I told my my crew, uh, which was my wife and a good friend of mine, Micah, um, I don't want to go hang out at the start line uh, for two or three hours beforehand. I want to wait, and I want to land there 30 minutes before. Because all of that energy, that nervous energy that's in the air, people start rethinking their strategies, their food, what they should take and not take. And I just felt it was better not to be a part of that um, this time. Yeah, And it worked beautifully. It was perfect timing. 
I got to shake hands and see uh, some of our desert rat folks. Yeah, uh, that were there, I saw they were there. Uh, running. Yeah, and catch up with them. Um, and I, before I knew it, you know, a few photos uh, with folks, and then uh, you know, here we go, start. Uh, so we just kind of threw ourselves into it like that, and boy, the the crew was like, "What's wrong with you? We got to go. We got to go." I was like, "No, we've already <laughs> got this all packed. We're ready. Yeah, uh, all you do is just kick me out, and off we go." Yeah, you're like, we have four days, you know, plenty of time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because yeah, that's the weird thing about any ultra, but a, I have to imagine a 200s, like, you can't keep that nervous energy up for the entire race, you know? It's impossible. So eventually you just have to have to manage it. And I like your strategy of just like, well, I'm going to manage this from the get-go and uh, not get too stressed out about it. Yeah, you got it. I mean, three or four miles into it, everyone's nervous energy has dissipated, uh, and they're already focusing on, yeah. you know, moving up the hill, the next aid station, uh, eating and taking care of themselves and seeing what the trail is. To actually, like, we're down to business now. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I was ready for. I was just ready to run. Yeah. Yeah, man. So what was the strategy? What was your strategy going into it, like, for the race? Take really good care of my feet. Uh, be prepared for any kind of weather uh, at that elevation. Um, and just try to run a second hundred faster than the first hundred. Um, and just keep it even keel. And if I got sleepy or tired, I was going to sleep on the side of the trail, under the bushes, under a tree, whatever. So I did very little sleeping in the aid stations, uh, tried to stay out on the course. And it worked out great. It worked out beautiful sleeping on the course. And there's a lot of other people who implemented that strategy as well. Uh, never slept for more than 45 minutes on the trail. Uh, didn't set a timer or anything like that. I just slept till I woke up uh, and just keep moving forward and just try to keep those aid stations uh, quick and don't hang out there too long. Uh, yeah, that's really basically the strategy, uh, but most of all, take care of the feet. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, I mean, I guess you could probably speak to this. Um, but after talking to a few people who have completed some two hundreds, it seems like the feet is the number one reason people have to DNF. Definitely. Uh, feet and uh in this case was weather uh yeah. the snow showers yeah. that we that got pounded brutal, with man. on the last <laughs> yeah. 30 years uh, it was it was <laughs> um gotta pay attention to your feet and a lot of people will ignore it the hot spots i remember one night uh another guy and i had hooked up uh and we were one o'clock in the morning and i remember it was like 12 40 and I could feel these hot spots. There's a lot of this uh, granite dust out there. And you want to talk about chewing up feet and turn them into hamburger. If you don't get that stuff out of there, it will murder your feet. And I could feel those hot spots. And this guy and I, man, we were lighting it up in the middle of the night. We were moving fast. I hated to kill the buzz. But I told him, I said, man, sorry, I've got to stop. I've got to clear these shoes and these socks go on i'll catch up and uh he did he went on and i took the time to do it 
didn't cost me anything. I ended up catching up to him, you know, in the next 15 minutes because he stopped for something else. So just don't ignore that taking care of those feet. You cannot ignore that. Yeah, because I could see people being tempted to be like, oh, we're in the middle of the night. I'm running with somebody who has a similar pace. Like, I'll just ignore these for now while we're making good time. And and mm-hmm. it's those little things that's going to knock you out of the race. Yep, absolutely. And, and, of course, I made it throughout the entire race, not a blister one, not that's a hot crazy, spot. That's crazy, man. That's so crazy. Spotless feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks you to should- my crew. You know how they do those before and after pictures for uh, the 200s? Yeah. They should do feet. They should do a before foot picture and then an after foot picture. Oh, that's a great idea. I will tell Scott Rokas that. Now I want to pass it off as my idea. <laughs> Go for it, man. <laughs> Go for it. There's no uh, audio evidence of whose idea it really was. <laughs> There'll be some feet you probably look at and go, well, is that the before or the after? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Some of them, like your feet would be really boring, you know? Yeah. Like oh, you yeah, don't want to yeah, see that. Yeah. But <laughs> Oh, I'm glad to hear you mention that. Boring. I used that analogy today uh, to a group I spoke with. Uh, be boring. You want to be boring out there. And that means planning, preparing, uh your trip, your, whatever it is you're doing. Cause when you, you know, you plan and you prepare and you prevent the three P's is what I call them. Yeah. That means you're going to be boring out there. And that's what you want to be. You want to be boring. You don't want to be that person loaded up with the injuries, uh, in the medic tent. You don't want the medics knowing your name. You know, if, <laughs> if you're anonymous with the medics, you made it. You're boring. Awesome. <laughs> I love that, man. That's like the best advice for 200, which if people haven't ran an ultra, they're like, how could you run a 200 mile event and be boring? That doesn't even make sense. But that that's a great <laughs> advice, man. I love it. Um, be boring. Be yeah. boring. Yeah. Did you have strategies? I mean, are you just shoveling food in the whole time or just kind of whenever you're hungry or what? Well, that was another huge takeaway from Bigfoot. Bigfoot, I had this strategy meal plan locked down. And when I got to about mile 130, I could not take or tolerate my food anymore. And I switched over to the eight station food, uh, which was burritos, burgers, all homemade, handmade stuff right there in front of you. Uh, hot dogs. I mean, junk food is what we call it probably. Yeah, but there's nothing better after running than that heavy calorie food, and I implemented that with my meal plan this time, and I actually switched it around. I thought, well, I'm gonna lean heavier on the real food off of the aid stations, and augment that in with my science food, you know, your goos and your chew blocks and things of that nature. Yeah, and that worked perfect. And then uh, I was having croissant and ham sandwiches with avocado. Uh, you know, I just eat those as I would walk along. Um, but yeah, diversify the meal plan. Yeah, yeah. And I almost think like, I don't know. This was my excuse to eat junk food this summer. But I was kind of like, well, my stomach has to be ready for M&Ms and, and stuff like that. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't eat like because before when I first started doing ultras, I would eat 
so insanely clean for like six weeks leading up to it. Um, and then I'd get to the race and I would, yeah. And I would start having stomach issues because all you're taking, you're taking in a lot more sugar than you're used to. Um, and so I kind of realized I'm like, you kind of like, obviously you shouldn't overdo it with the junk food or anything, but like your stomach has to be ready for that as well. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, the last eight weeks, I literally practiced eating eight station food that I knew <laughs> they would have there. Yeah. And that was the bean and cheese and rice burritos, uh, a little bit of burgers. Yeah. Uh, my croissant ham sandwiches. Uh, that's all I would use. I wouldn't even touch my science food. I already know how it works. Yeah. But I did. I started relying on that and putting on just a little bit of body fat. And yeah. I felt great. And so when it did come time to do that, no stomach issues whatsoever. None. That's, that's awesome. And you and you saw that and you see now. You gotta train that. Yeah, you do. And it's funny just for you because your wife is a chef and I'm imagining you being like, Hey, do we have stuff for a ham and cheese sandwich? And she's like, Really? <laughs> well, we ultimately did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was good. They were very gourmet sandwiches. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Nice man. That's cool. Um yeah, so I guess can you was it like what's a what's a high moment and what's a low moment from the race? Uh, high moment, and that's a good word, um, Chris. Uh, someone asked me this question: uh, what, what was your best memory of something? And my comment was: there wasn't a memory; there were moments. And moments stitched together make memories. There was a lot of fantastic, incredible moments that changed my life in Tahoe 200. The sunsets, the sunrises, um, the people you're around, the people I get to meet from other countries and become instant friends with them and to learn and discover why they were there running. They, They were there running for other people. Yeah. Other causes, not themselves. Th- those were really high moments for me. Um, my crew, how they gave just self- selflessly. They they wanted to see you success, have success, be right there with you. Anything you wanted. Uh, pacers that take you through the night and make sure that you're drinking. All those little moments, you know, the uh, they stitch together and make fantastic memories. Um, the low moment, um, if there was one, was when it was over. Yeah. Um, I, that's always hard for me coming home. I struggle with that a great deal uh, out there. I always think I'm going to find something spectacular at the finish line. And maybe that's something i got to fix inside of me. But... Uh, I, Seem to have just missed it one more time. Whatever was at the finish line, I missed it. Yeah, and and I'm still looking for it. I'm still looking for it, and that's always a low moment for me because I know it's not going to be there. Whatever that it is, I don't know what it is yet. But I but I'll know what it is one day. But that that would have had to have been the low moment. For yeah. Me. Do you do you think? I mean. Is that why you run the race? Are you out there like seeking 
uh, some sort of enlightenment and, and really, I don't know. It just, it's, I have the same thing. I get home from a race, uh, something I've trained so hard for and spent a lot of my, you know, kind of, uh, energy on like both physical and like emotional and stuff. And you do have that little kind of down, down moment, but isn't it a good thing like that you don't find it because then, then you won't be seeking it anymore. You're absolutely right. Uh, I'm glad it always evaporates before I get there (laughs) so so that I can go back. And maybe the other thing is that we find out there is peace, peace in the moment and peace in the moments that make memories. And it gives us time to reflect maybe on uh, our lives, our experiences. And maybe that's what brings them back to life. And maybe the finish line is just the, the, that little memory being over for a little while and we get to come back and run again to relive those memories. Yeah. I, I mean, I've never heard it said like that, but I think you kind of just nailed it. You kind of summed up why, why I keep signing up for these things anyways is, is because of those moments of just like seeking understanding of life and and peace and like having that moments to myself to really kind of like just break down how life is going and and trying to trying to learn from it you know or learn like gratitude and appreciation yeah there you are yeah maybe that's what it is uh learn it and understand it better and share it as well yeah uh, gratitude and appreciation for the other folks that are out there. Yeah, and relearn it because after uh, you know a few months of returning back to normalcy, it kind of fades a bit. But you know what? Like every time, it doesn't fade all the way. You know what I mean? Like you, you I leave a race and I'm like, oh, I figured everything. <laughs> I figured out life out. I figured everything out, and then it slowly <laughs> fades. But it doesn't fade all the way. So I leave ultimately like a better person because of it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's spot on. Yeah. That is spot on because uh, as time drifts and the moment passes, we do. It does fade a little bit. It doesn't quite go away. But we know it fades away because when we go back, we're reminded again, oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot. And uh, you're you're pulled back to it immediately, uh, but it does never go away. You know, that's right. But, yeah, yeah, man. What uh, what what were you thinking when that snow moved in, though? Like any four letter words <laughs> thrown out there or anything like that? Let me tell you, that was a race ender for a lot of folks. Right really? Because it was um, towards the end, though, right? It was the end, the last 30 miles. <laughs> yeah, the last uh, half a day <laughs> or a whole day. Yeah, the, yeah, a whole day for some of us. <laughs> um, i tell you what I did. I lost a lot of time there. Uh, I was very cautious. Um, I got kicked out of the aid station there. And, Wait, you got, uh, what do you mean kicked out of an aid my, station? Uh, pushed out. Uh, oh, okay. No, get on. Get to running. Uh, my crew <laughs> gave me the weather reports. Um, and I took the appropriate gear, uh, uh, heavy, uh, rain showers, uh, 25 to 30 degree drop in temperature. We were headed up to 9,000 feet, um, could be, uh, heavy snow showers. So I took all the required gear I would need to stay warm. I thought, 
uh, it would be enough. And so took up, uh, got in two or three, four miles, and uh, it started uh, tinkling on me a little bit. So I thought, well, I'll go ahead and pull on my rain gear. I got it all on. And as I was putting it on, I'd set my pack on a huge log there, trail side. Well, all of a sudden, I felt stabbing pain in my right shoulder, a lot of it. And I thought, what is that? Well, it was I was being attacked by bees, and they attacked my right shoulder. And I grabbed my gear, and I took off running to get away from that. And as soon as I got away from them, the, the skies opened up and started dumping rain on us. <laughs> um, and it quickly turned to snow. Oh, my God, Well, dude. I went about a mile into that, and I got to a meadow, and it was three inches an hour coming down. I mean, fast and heavy. Uh, so I took cover and shelter um, in a thicket of pine to protect myself from getting wet and cold to figure out whether or not I need to go back and get even more gear or do I sit here and wait it out and see what happens? Well, back to the Leadville lesson I learned about the light. I did. I sat there in that thicket of pine with that snow coming down. I put on everything I had and debated whether or not going up to 8,500, 9,000 feet. I knew people already left and were not prepared for that. Well, I sat there about an hour and a half, and it looked like it was letting up. Skies were getting lighter, but it's still coming down heavy. Well, along comes another racer guy, and uh, he sees me in there, and he literally has a couple inches of snow built up all over him. And he had to come in to knock it all off and put on more clothes. So we sat there and we visited and uh, uh, he asked, well, what are you doing? Are you going to go on? Or what, what's going on? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm trying to decide here. I'm not sure if I'm really prepared. And uh, he said, well, I have some extra you know, layers if you need them or anything. And uh, I said, well, thanks. I appreciate it. And he said, well, you didn't, you didn't run this far to lay down and turn back, did you? And I was like, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> sure so, didn't. Uh, yeah. He and I pulled it together, and uh, with his little bit of encouragement, I went out uh, and decided to make the push up the hill. And it did, it continued to snow and everything. My concern was just getting hypothermic yeah. uh, when you're as light and as small as I am. Uh, and after you've been running for 180 miles, that's a real concern, and you've got to be careful about that. That's ended races for me before. Yeah. But, um, I just kept pushing uh, one mile at a time up that uh, big hill. And, of course, you know, there was five inches of snow uh, on the ground by this time. Uh, but, yeah, I pushed through and made it. Uh, but I know a lot of people got in trouble there. But I was glad I was patient. I watched the skies. It led up. And uh, then all of a sudden, here comes a little encouragement. And off I went. So yeah. I, I was glad I was patient this time. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the, what would the other option have been? Just go for it and then realize halfway up the hill that you're in big trouble? Correct. And halfway up the hill, there were two people coming back. Um, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't do it. They got, they got cold and turned around and went back. Wow. Uh, and then I had to think about that. I was like, oh, am I making the right decision? 
So I took a quick inventory, head to toe. Okay, nothing's cold anywhere. You're wrapped up tight. Uh, just keep moving. You have enough energy. You're not sleepy. You're not going to stop or slow down. So as long as you can keep the furnace on, you should be fine. And I did. Uh, kept the furnace on fine, made it to the top, uh, crested over, and traversed over to the next mountain. And I literally ran uh, the next six miles all the way down the hill uh, back to the lakeshore. Wow. What does it feel like to run after 180 miles? Uh, it takes a little bit of warming up. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's you don't just take off running. And we actually practice this uh, on in my training plan, running some intervals. Okay. Uh, so I already had that in my arsenal. I knew what it would feel like. Uh, it's walk, uh, walk, 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 jog, walk, walk, walk. Jog, jog, walk, 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 jog, jog, maybe run. Uh, but downhill's a little easier for me, uh, free speed. Uh, so you could kind of get that momentum going. But it definitely took me a, a solid couple of miles to get it going to where I could run yeah. and not be tired of running. Uh, we had one downhill section earlier that day that was 12-mile downhill. 12 miles of downhill. That's rough. I, I literally... I had to walk the last five. I was so tired of running downhill. Uh, and my quads were, they were a little bit fried. Yeah. They were a little bit fried. So uh, I, I just like, no, I got to walk. I just got to walk. And so, but you know, you're still walking it, you know, three miles an hour. Yeah. Plus. So that's a pretty good walk. Yeah. Dang, man. That's a, uh... That's so crazy. So from my perspective, me and Phil, which we called you halfway through the race, uh, we figured you were deep in the mountains though. Um, but our perspective is just this blue dot <laughs> slowly moving <laughs> around a big lake. <laughs> um, and I know a lot of people kind of followed the race that way. Um, and it is just incredible because you started on Friday morning and all weekend long, I'm watching this blue dot. I brought it up on Monday for my uh, my leadership class at school um, as you were finishing up. And we were watching your little blue dot just go around. And they're like, wait, what did he do? I'm like, well, he's like 180 miles in right now uh, of a 200-mile race. And they're like, wait, hold up, Mr. Ward. What are you talking about? And I was like, because we were talking about dreaming big. And I'm like there's not much of a bigger dream than looking at Lake Tahoe and being like, I'm going to run around that thing real quick. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, a lot of people have resonated that same sentiment. And I uh, listened to y'all's phone message when y'all called and uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, it was afterwards. Uh, it certainly made me emotional. Uh, and I knew that you guys were watching. I could feel y'all out there. Yeah. And there were many times I was running. I was like, I'm running for these guys. They, they are the eye in the sky and they can see me and I don't want to let them down. I don't want to let anybody down. Yeah. And I thought that many, many times, um, uh, real sweet sentiment. And there was a, another friend of mine, uh, who's an executive banker. He did almost the same thing you did. <laughs> Monday morning, he gave a PowerPoint presentation. He sent me the pictures of him giving a presentation on leadership and all of this. And it's the blue dot. 
<laughs> yeah, that blue dot, man. Here's a blue dot out here. This guy's still out there running, you know. <laughs> um, and it was awesome to to hear the care in y'all's voice that Thomas is still out there. Yeah. He's still out there. He's still going. And that really touched my heart to know that there is someone out there thinking that that guy is still out there. He's still going, you know, no one left behind. Uh, we got to get this guy to that finish line. And, and I think that's just how the ultra community works. Our guy, our gal is still out there. They're still moving and we're still here for them, whether it's a, a blue dot or in spirit or as a crew member. Yep. That's what's so awesome about this sport. Yeah. Well, it is. Cause it's like, we're all in this it's it's really an analogy for life and real life because it's like we're all in this together why not be the people supporting each other along the way you know yeah exactly exactly yeah i love it yeah man i love it too dude so (laughs) i really appreciate you coming on the show man i really like i said i look up to you um for so many reasons and I've, it's just been a pleasure getting to know you and being able to run races with you. And, uh, it's really tempting to sign up for a 200 like now more than ever. It's the most, it's really tempting because I I don't know real quick, just kind of speak to this, but it's different. I've never ran a hundred mile race, but everyone tells me it's like almost a completely different event. Without a doubt. Totally different. Yeah. Like, uh, like how so? Totally different. Uh, the pressure's not there. The cutoffs aren't there. Okay. It's just not nearly as competitive. It's more of an eating contest now. I'm in. Uh, I can do that. I can do eating contests. I think that's why you'd be great at this. <laughs> you know? Um, it is. It's a totally different mentality. It's longer. It's just. It's just a bigger thing. Yeah, uh, it requires a little more focus, a little more attention, um, and a little more help. Uh, help isn't bad on these. Crew is critical, and uh, you know, before I get away from here, I want to say just hats off to my crew. Yeah, uh, my awesome, amazing wife, uh, my great friend Micah. Uh, you know, without them, this was a totally girl-powered team. Uh, I-, I couldn't have done it. And they had the hardest job. They really did. Uh, going from aid station to aid station, sleep deprivation, middle of the night, trying to find places. Uh, you got to surround yourself with good, solid, knowledgeable, dependable folks. Um, and this one just happened to be all girl power. Man, they got it done. That's uh, awesome. That, that's man. the reason I made it to the line for sure. That's so awesome. Well, cool, uh, man. Yeah, do that 200. I'll do it with you. <laughs> I mean, I'll there's one. There's one kind of close to us, right? Like close to me. Let's Moab two forty. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that is also the one that you haven't done yet, correct? Correct, correct, oh, correct. Man, so dude, this is peer maybe pressure. We buddy up, <laughs> and we knock that dude out. <laughs> this is so much peer pressure, something, man. Something, no pressure. My like mom's gonna to hear this for, for sure. My mom's gonna hear this and be like. Oh, what? Like, you know, the mom worry. She's going to make awesome crew chief. She'll be a great crew chief. 
because we're bringing mom along because you're going to want your mommy at some point. I guarantee you. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, man. All right, sweet. Well, we'll our award is coming. (laughs) We'll wrap up there, dude. Thanks again for doing the show. And, uh, hopefully we can, we can get, get some sort of event going in the future. Thanks for having me, Chris. I so enjoy your friendship. Yeah, me too, man. All right, guys, that wraps up the end of the episode. Um, Thank you so much to Thomas. He is, like I said in the beginning, uh, one of the most knowledgeable people I've met about endurance racing, um, ultra running, uh, and really from my conversations with him, uh, the 200-mile races and and what he's learned over the last two of them. Uh, I've never been more tempted then after I was done talking with him to sign up for, for a 200 mile race. Um, and we'll get back to that at some point, but I've been texting him this week and I'm like, Hey, so what do you think, man? Do you think it's possible? And of course he's the most positive guy ever. He's like, yeah, of course possible, man. I'm like, ah, dude sounds, it sounds, and then the more I looked, I went on Scott uh, Rokus or Rockus. I'm not sure how to say his name. Um, just looking at his pictures, which you should go. I think it's, uh, oh, man, I'm going to mess it up. Let me look it up really quick. But the photos from the Tahoe 200 are completely mind-blowing. Oh, it's run200photos.com. Please look at those, and you will start to get an idea of what this event is like for everyone involved. And it looks, I mean, there's all the things you expect, like people looking at their feet, getting blisters, drinking water, like looking exhausted and looking like a train just hit them. Like, Oh, what did I just get into? Um, but then there's a lot of things you wouldn't expect. There's bright smiles on people's faces. Um, thumbs up, just happiness, community hugs, kisses, all that stuff like it it looks very 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 difficult but it looks like something i feel like it looks appealing at the same time let me just say that like the community um the people they just they look like a a great group of folks and uh and first of all, I'm honored to even be able to talk to people about these events. Like, I think that's incredible. Um, but it's also very, very tempting to uh, to really, truly look into. Um, so that's Destination Trails. I guess if you want to check that stuff out. They have the Bigfoot, Tahoe, and then uh, Moab 240. So, um, and at the same time, like from what people have told me, it's it's different than hundred milers. Uh, you have more time. You're going slower. Uh, you hike more. You eat more. Hiking more and eating more is right up my alley. Like I love that. So, um, so yeah. Uh, but Thomas, uh, like I said, I I've learned so much from him, and I hope you guys really took a lot away from this conversation. Um, it's been really fun getting to know him and becoming friends with him over the last few years. Uh, and, and I, you know, can't wait to do some more races with him in the future. Um, if you want to follow his stuff on social media, he's tab underscore Mullins. So T a B underscore M U L L I N S. Um, so, uh, 
yeah, he's got a lot of a lot of different things going on there. So definitely check that out. But it's always fun to talk with him, fun to kind of see what he's up to. Uh, it was super fun just following the blue dot uh, as we went through um, as he went through around Lake Tahoe. It was really fun and inspiring to to see how he was going and and to watch him keep going after after days of being out there. Um, it's still anytime I talk about the 200s, it still is so captivating and uh and it's it's a bit mind-blowing at the same time so um so yeah um but that'll wrap it up for this week we're coming at you next week we have tales from the pacific crest trail uh which spoiler alert had a lot of snow (laughs) um but a really fun conversation um with uh a hiker who had just wrapped up and and she had a lot of really cool stories so come back next week for that All right, we'll get back at you then. See ya.